Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and I'm talking today with one of the members of my Balancing You membership community. As a perk of being in my community, you get to come on the podcast and get free coaching with me. And so I'm really excited to have this wonderful mom. She has a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a baby who is just shy of becoming Earthside. And so we're going to be talking today a little bit about her relationship with her three-year-old, how she's kind of triggered in that relationship, her reactivity, and she's doing a lot of great, beautiful inner healing work that is still in progress. And she's wondering kind of, okay, so while I'm doing this inner healing work, while I'm kind of doing that work, how do I respond in the moment? Because the triggers are still happening and kind of how do I do this inner work as I'm also doing this external work of parenting? So hi, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your situation, yourself, your family, and we'll dig right into your relationship with your three-year-old. Hi. Okay. Well, I am a you know, stay-at-home mom for a almost three and a half and two-year-old. I'm 37 weeks pregnant. And I don't live around family. And nobody is close by. My husband tends to work a lot. So I really am pretty intensely involved in being a almost solo parent sometimes. Mm. Um, so my, you know, my, my three-year-old and my two-year-old are exact opposite personalities. My three-year-old is a very smart, cognitive, creative, very emotionally attuned girl. She is just a little bit more challenging for me and has always sort of been my child that triggers me more. My two-year-old is a little bit more laid back. She's more I guess type B and she kind of goes with the flow a little bit more and a little more forgiving <laughs> and so you know I'm, I'm home all day with them my three-year-old I just started her with a like a, a couple hours in the morning at a play group so that gives me a little bit of space but for the most part it's been a little bit intense especially since COVID started with very few or no play dates and really no way of getting a break yeah, it's hard, isn't it? When we've got one, you know, one of our kids is kind of full on, intense, sensitive, it makes the experience of, you know, attempting to hold a respectful space with them very intense, you know, like exhausting, right? 
Yeah, like I, you know, I've been reading up since day one on all this, you know, follow your blogs and Janet Lansbury and, you know, I I love this stuff and I have all the books and I'm trying to Mm -hmm. do all this inner work. But when it comes down, practically speaking to my day to day, it's, it's just so, so difficult to implement. Yeah, it is. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it and we'd probably have a way better society, right? But it's not easy because we're working against, you know, generations of trauma and conditioning that we're undoing. And it, it is hard to move against the stream, you know, of the kind of the tide that's pulling us into you know, keeping us in the same path that we've always been in. I want to commend you on the work that you're doing to enact intergenerational change in your family, um, to be that inflection point where your family changes direction that is a powerful place to be in, but it can be hard and it can be lonely. You were telling me before we started too that it's kind of been this way with your daughter from the moment she was born, that she was born kind of a difficult temperament baby. She was born with, you know, as difficult to soothe. She had some colic going on and it's kind of just been this way. Yeah, you know, being I wasn't new to newborn care, but having a colic newborn reflux baby uh, as your first is kind of traumatic. <laughs> I know I had one too. <laughs> Didn't quite realize what it really meant when you're day in and day out with it. I remember one time I just I hired a babysitter through an agency and I just told her, you know, it was the beginning of the winter. I'm like, just take her outside. I just can't listen to the screaming anymore. Mm. Um, so all these intentions I had for her, even as a young baby, you know, the ways I wanted to interact, the ways I wanted to, you know, even sleep train her, all these things and ideas that I had in my head that I really value went out the window just totally went out the window yeah i was so reactive in a way that was kind of surprised me how strong because you're so raw without sleep and postpartum and that i wouldn't venture to say that i was had postpartum depression or anxiety it wasn't quite there but it was teetering because you just stripped away of all your defenses when you're a parent and all this stuff that you thought you had put together because I've been through therapy before this is not new to me that I thought I kind of had some of this stuff together you just get stripped of a lot of your defenses it's a really raw time it is yeah and you realize I guess it's kind of in a way it's good to strip away the band-aid to see what you're left with but it's also really difficult to model I'm very reactive to her from the beginning I mean her cries just you know pulled at my heart in a way that I never experienced before Absolutely. And they they do, they pull at you and they're supposed to, right? This is what keeps babies and humans safe and growing as a, you know, as a species. But at the same time, like we also have this idea that we are supposed to know how to soothe our babies, that we are supposed to be able to soothe our babies. And when you have a baby who's difficult to soothe, who has a difficult temperament and also has, you know, some of the colic or reflux stuff going on, that feedback loop that builds confidence in new parents is broken. And we become Come, like ev- almost every interaction with our baby confirms the bias that we have, that we're screwing it up, that we don't know what we're doing, that we're, you know, it, all of those negative thoughts that we might have about ourselves. It's a very vulnerable thing to have a baby that is difficult to soothe. Yeah, and it really just continued into her toddler years. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think about how I react to her now, it's not all that different. Yeah. Um, she's a very, very sensitive child, and she goes from zero to 100 quickly, just like she did when she was a baby. It's just a little bit different now. And I guess I kind of had an expectation that she would grow out of certain things where she would, you know, I think of her as three going on 30. So she is very mature. So sometimes I put a little bit too much adult regulation, emotional regulation onto her. And I'm like, why can't you just, you know, stop screaming? Yeah. <laughs> the problem is not such a big deal. So, you know, 
I noticed with her talk back to me, that's what bothers me the most is when she plays or when she talks back to me and I hear myself through her, through her voice. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's what bothers, what makes me realize how far gone I am sometimes. Yeah. And it scares me. Okay, so I want to pull out a few things there that I think lots of parents experience. So one, when we have a child who seems more mature, maybe has a, like a bigger vocabulary and verbal expression skills, it can be so easy to have higher expectations of their emotional regulation and their impulse control and all of those types of skills. Um, and it's so important to, you know, in the moment, remind ourselves that even though they sound like they are talking like a four or five year old, that really they're still emotionally three. I, I think that that can be really hard though to do. And then the other piece that you were talking about too, that just made me think about my episode that I did with an OT on raising sensitive and spirited kids. It sounds to me, so some kids are born with systems that are more sensitive and being in the world, just kind of existing in the world is more taxing to their nervous systems, to their regulation systems, I mean, which leads them to have a narrow window of tolerance that is just naturally more narrow. And that means that things that wouldn't normally set off the, the average three-year-old do set off those three-year-olds. And so you know, I guessing you probably listened to that episode. But if you haven't, I would definitely go back recommend going back and listening to it. And for anybody listening who's got one of these kids that just really feels like they are just, you know, losing it over everything going from zero to 100, super intense, super sensitive, everything is the end of the world. Check out that episode. It's 34. Just to see what you think and see if it might be might apply to you. I've heard from lots of people who have listened to that episode, then gone and gotten a consult with an occupational therapist. The therapist was like, yes, we can help you. And they're already seeing improvements. So that episode is wonderful. But the other, I mean, so the piece of this though, is that like, how do we differentiate then when this is kind of typical three-year-old stuff, you know, because three, I mean, being a three-year-old is rough. Being a three-year-old is a hard time. It's even harder when you have a difficult temperament, because that's what I'm kind of hearing you say is that she's got, you know, this is temperaments are something that have been studied a lot. And kids, it's almost like the precursors to personality traits. And some kids are more difficult. Some kids, are more intense. Some kids are more sensitive. And those things don't necessarily have to be a bad thing. We just have to learn about them and flex and roll with what it is that they're doing, how they show up, the kid that's kind of in front of us rather than the kid we were expecting to have. But so one of the things though that I think is so important is that when we are looking at our kid and we have all of these ideas about what a three-year-old is supposed to be like and they trigger us, that means that we have other stuff that's kind of getting in the way of us seeing them clearly. That can block us from having an authentic connection with them. It can block us from being able to be the parent that we want to be with them that you know, when things are calm and soothed, and our nervous system is down regulated, and we're able to be conscious and intentional. And we're like, Oh, that's not what I'm how I want to show up. But in that moment, it can be so hard, right? And that's what you're experiencing, it sounds like. Yeah, and I've never been really good with holding my boundaries with her because um, she tests me so much. Mm. So I really would love to be able to hold these healthy boundaries and give her that clarity of being the leader and the parent. Yeah. And, and she picks up on my inconsistencies and she picks up on all this stuff. So like, you know, we had an issue recently with night wakings. She had been a great sleeper up until about, I don't know, five months ago. And all of a sudden it became an issue. And I, so I try to set boundaries with that. But, you know, when she's screaming her head off at two o'clock in the morning and she's waking up her sister. So I cave. 
And mm. there was a lot of back and, you know, going back and with that stuff, because I, it's very hard to hold boundaries with a child like that, even though you know they need it so badly. Yeah. So, and these are times too, that it's helpful to, okay, so we've, you know, if the night wakings are starting to happen, we've had a couple of them. Okay, now we need to make a proactive plan for what's going to happen rather than in the moment trying to figure it out. But it is, it is hard to hold boundaries. And it's especially hard to hold boundaries when we are motivated by fear. Like even in just that, like what you were just talking about, you were afraid someone else would wake up, but you're also afraid that if I don't hold the boundary, you know, she senses my inconsistency. So there's fear there and I'm, I was curious we were talking before we started recording too about how she triggers some thoughts and fears in you can you tell us a little bit about this I asked you before if she reminds you of anybody yeah yeah she does I'm the, this fear thing is very real to me whenever I look at our situation between my daughter and I and I feel like I'm failing the first thing that pops up into my head is my my oldest sister and my mom and to me the failure between myself and my daughter is almost identical Mm. Um, my oldest sister also apparently triggered my mom. I think she was also a colic baby from the stories I hear. Mm. She must have had some other stuff going on that they didn't really address back then. But they definitely struggled a lot from the story. The stories that my mother tells me about my oldest sister, they're all negative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the baby stories that I hear are all about how she was always screaming. And, you know, they're, they're all kind of negative. And I get the sense that she was pretty traumatized by her and very triggered by her and she actually had my second sister close in age similar to what my situation is right now and my second older one is type B really a lot more chilled out kind of gave my mother what she needed in terms of the nurturing Mm. she wanted the hugs and the kisses and the cuddling while my oldest sister rejected that is Mm. not a touchy person very similar to my situation my oldest is highly sensitive but doesn't want the hugs and kisses she wants you to talk to her Mm -hmm. She wants attention. She just needs the love in a different way. And my second child, she just wants you to hug and kiss her and, you know, everything's fine and dandy. And that feels good as a parent to, because it feels good to me to receive that. And my oldest rejects that. And that's hard. And I just, I see this playing out the same way it did with my mom. Yeah, it's a lot of fear. Yeah. So relationships, there are absolutely patterns in families that kind of run through a family like this. Um, Most families have them. If you draw a family tree and then add in kind of symbols to represent the the type of relationship people had, you can see them flow through a family. And it's normal, I think, to be afraid of that. So there's this fear that is in the present moment, this fear of, I don't want to have that same relationship with my daughter. I don't want to have that. I don't want to repeat that pattern with her. I do feel a little bit curious about how you now feel about your sister and how you remember feeling about her as a kid. I kind of want to focus in on like, what did you think about your sister as a kid? And what did you think about her now? I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but I I sort of reacted to her the same way my mom did. When you were Um, little? When you were a kid? Yeah. You didn't um, like her, maybe even. I never liked her. She was always irritating to me as well. Why do you think that is? What, you know, like now from your kind of adult place looking back down on it, like, why do you think that is? Why do you think a kid would kind of not like their sister? 
Oh, well, I mean, I think it's a combination of her learning to receive negative attention from others as love. So she did actually do things to irritate you, <laughs> to get a reaction from you. That was how she experienced love and attention. Mm-hmm. So that trickled down to her siblings as well. So she was always, you know, the do-gooder and trying. And it was just a very irritating older sister to have. Um, yeah. It was always, uh, you know, tattletailing on you and just not, she just knew how to trigger all of ours, but actually mm-hmm. but for me I mean it was probably the only thing I, I learned I mean that was I was watching my mom reacting to her so whether yeah. I whether I and my child's mind knew that it was bad or wrong mm-hmm. it doesn't matter because that was my world <laughs> and that's how I knew to react to her when she did things even that were that were really kind like if sometimes she would do things that were trying to help me or trying to help mm-hmm. my mom and, you know she's always trying to be helpful but she would do it in a way that would trigger you or irritate you and you didn't want her help Yeah. Okay. What you're saying makes so much sense. As a little kid, you're watching these interactions between your mom and your sister and you are learning, okay, I cannot be that way. The way that my sister is as bad and wrong. It's getting her rejected. It's getting her punished. You know, it is this, what she's doing is scary and bad and wrong. And I can't be that way if I want to stay in my mom's good graces, if I want to stay connected with my mom. And so it makes complete sense that from a child's perspective, like that that's what they, you would be learning. And it also makes complete sense that when you see those very behaviors, those very behaviors that that were labeled bad, wrong, annoying, irritating, obnoxious, when you see them in your daughter, it makes sense that there is an echo there, an echo of that, like, this is bad, this is wrong, this needs to stop now. On the one part, there's this little one inside you who is like annoyed, like, oh, God, another sister like this, you know? And then there's another part that's like afraid for your daughter, afraid for like, we have to stop this because she's going to get rejected, you know? And then there's this fear in the in the current moment of like, oh, gosh, this pattern is repeating itself. I don't want this for my daughter. I don't want this for her and me, you know? So there's all this stuff. It's very complicated. So I do want to know, how do you feel towards the little you who didn't like her sister? Now, as an adult, like looking back at that little one who was kind of annoyed by her sister, who couldn't see the good in her sister at that point in time, and was kind of just reacting based on the family system that she was in. How do you feel towards that, towards little you? I mean, I can only think of it in my adult mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, so looking back at adult you or uh, from your adult chair, or your adult position, looking back at little you who felt negatively towards her sister, how do you feel towards that little one? I feel really sorry that I could even as a little girl, you know, a couple of years younger than her, I couldn't be there for her. And yeah, I there's guilt there. I could, yeah, like I couldn't, I fell into the same pattern. Yeah. And I wonder what it would be like to as your adult self right now, cultivate a little bit of compassion for that little girl. Like, what does that little girl need? The one that you were, who had a hard time in her family because her sister was so difficult. Like, is there any part of you that's open to like validating like little you saying like, it makes sense that you rejected your sister. And, you know, it maybe wasn't right. And now we're grownups and we know that there were other options, but you were a kid and you didn't know there were other options and you were doing the best you could. What would it be like to say that to little you? Yeah, that's like my biggest challenge right now with the work that we're doing together. Yeah. <laughs> it's honestly week one compassion week. That is, will be my biggest challenge. But what you're saying makes sense to me. I just can't quite get there right now so let's go in a little bit to then to that little one little you who's there who's in this family system with a really difficult kid who's having a hard time and ill-equipped parents parents who don't know how to handle a kid who's difficult like this 
does it make sense to you that like a kid who's in this scenario, who's a sibling who's watching this happen would respond in the way that you maybe did? Just cognitively, does that make yeah, sense? It makes yeah. total sense cognitively. It just feels, you know, just so. Yeah, absolutely. It feels wrong, but like it makes sense. Like we can totally yeah. get why this little girl was this way, right? It's survival. It's It's all you know, too. Like if you grow up in a situation where difficult people are met with shame and blame and judgment instead of compassion, then how else are you supposed to know how to interact with them, right? What do you think would have happened if you like, if you know, there was an aunt in your family who would come in and be like, I know your sister's having a really hard time right now. And her parents are not handling it well. She's your sister is a lovely person. And she wants to help you. You know, like, what if you had someone who came alongside you and helped you see your sister differently than just through the lens of your parents? What do you think would have, how would it have been different? I would like to think that that would have helped a lot. Yeah. (laughs) In understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And so I just, part of me wonders to in as a part of your inner work that you're doing, that the compassion piece can be hard. It can be quite a lot easier to come from a cognitive place of like, it makes sense that you were the way you were. And then rather than going in and offering that little person compassion for being that way, you can also reparent yourself by coming alongside and being that aunt or someone else who came in and showed little you a different way to see your sister, that might be really helpful. So like if you have time to do some meditation, some reflections on incidences that you remember from your childhood where your sister was really difficult and you were watching and thinking back, like pulling up some of those scenarios and then stepping into the frame as your wise adult self now and explaining it to the little one, explaining it with all of the little you, explaining it to little you, all of the things that are going on, you know, that right now your sister is overwhelmed. Her brain is like, you can even like have a little session where you sit down with little you in your brain and you teach her about like the brainstem and the three levels of cognitive development and what's going on in her sister's brain. Like these are all things that you can do as internal work with your little self that are maybe easier to access than like full on compassion. And that will help little you be more compassionate to your sister like so that when you look back on those memories they will have a different color to them a a different like tenor a different vibration to them does that make sense yeah yeah and what is powerful about that is that when we do that when we go in and we take a look at those memories that we have and we give them a different color we kind of start shifting the lens that we ourselves were using while we were watching the situation then when they happen in our real life with the person who's triggering those memories like the real life interactions also take on that different tenor because the lens that you're viewing your daughter with when she's being difficult, when she's kind of acting like your sister, that lens is completely clouded by little you's lens, right? It's completely clouded. And so if we want to change the lens that we are using to view our kids, for some people, you know, you can learn new things about child development and it's easy to shift that lens away. But sometimes we have these old lenses that are deeply ingrained in us and it's really hard to move them in the moment. And so we have to kind of go back in time and change the actual lens instead of shifting it away. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. I know when I've had success in doing that, it's just like taking me to a different mindset with her. Yes, absolutely. When I am successful, 
it's amazing the shift that happens within me and then whatever I do or don't do whether it's you know quote-unquote right or wrong parenting it doesn't matter because the feeling she's getting from me is is warm Yes, the feeling she's getting from you is acceptance, right? And in general, you have been programmed to reject her, right? So you grew up in a situation that everything that she is, everything that she embodies was, you were programmed to reject it, right? And so we have to reprogram that so that you can be unconditionally accepting in the moment with her. And they feel that. Our kids feel the difference when we come at them from a place of acceptance, right? And so in the moment when that's happening, when she is waking up this echo of your sister that's within you, right? That's what it is. It's an echo, right? That's within you. She's waking it up and the little one inside you is like, oh God, here we go again, or whatever it is that they, she says, I don't know what the things are that you get, like, this doesn't need to be a big deal. Why does it have to be so difficult? I don't like, are those the things that you say (laughs) to yourself in your head? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I know this because I have similar echoes and I have a similar child, right? And so what's beautiful about these children is that they give us the chance to heal really deep wounds, really deep patterns. And quite, you know, in doing this work with your daughter as your kind of like co-conspirator, she has the power to help you heal your relationship with your sister. And we're not putting that on her, just to be super clear. It is not our children's job to heal us or do anything for us, but they do give us opportunities, right? Okay, so in the moment when that's happening and that echo kind of starts waking up inside of us and we have to recognize like all the thoughts like of, why can't this just be easy? Why can't she just do what I ask? You know, we have to recognize all of those thoughts, that flood, that cascade of thoughts. Those thoughts are all coming from the past. Those are all coming from our programming, right? And so when that's happening, those little ones inside of us, those echoes are very present and close and concerned and they're listening, right? So they're open and available for changing too. So in that moment, if you can get a little bit of a pause, which I hope you're doing your mindfulness practices so that you can have this the nervous system soothing that allows you to have the pause, if you can get a little bit of a pause and be able to acknowledge and accept that flood, that flood of like, why can't she just do this? Like, this needs to get done. You know, this needs to be over. Why does she have to be so difficult? You know, all of those things that you tell yourself and start acknowledging like, oh, yeah, that's the programming for my childhood. That's about my sister and separate from like what's actually going on now and get a little bit of that distance. I think that that can be really helpful. You can also like that gives you an opportunity to do a little bit of work with seven year or I don't, I don't know why I keep saying seven year old you. I keep saying it in my head. I don't know if that's the actual age. It just I don't know. Anyway. But going like going into talking a little bit, like as you talk to your daughter, letting your inner child watch you do that is almost the same thing as kind of that proactive piece of the part of it where you're doing it proactively, you're calling up the memories and kind of reparenting yourself in the, you know, in your memories, you're doing it in the moment where you're saying like, hey, little me, listen to this, watch this, this is what your sister deserved. And this is what you deserve to see. And then we're going to model like good, respectful parenting for the little one inside us. Does that make sense? I don't know. Or is it too like, (laughs) too like... (laughs) you're saying and I'm trying to think of way how this practically plays out but I understand what you're saying yeah so like give me an example of a time like when she is you know your trigger she's having a really hard time so one pretty typical scenario is around mealtime yeah so it's always um 
whatever I offer isn't good enough or it's not the right temperature or it's not, I didn't cut it right or I didn't do something right or she wants something I don't have. Or usually there's some sort of meltdown around mealtime. Okay. Yeah. And then I go to that place in my head almost immediately, which is like, oh my God, <laughs> enough. <Yeah>. Enough. <laughs> what are, what, I don't care. <laughs> what, are, like, what are the things that you say like to yourself? Like she doesn't like anything. She has to be difficult. Like what are the things that you say? The main thing that in my head is just why can't you be more flexible? Why can't you be more flexible? Okay. Yeah. Why does everything have to be perfect? Why does everything temperature perfect? Yeah. Cut Mm. the perfect way. (laughs) I can't sneeze on it. I can't. (laughs) Why do you have to be so controlling? Why can't you be flexible? Okay. And so in the moment, when you first see that thought float through your brain, through the like the synapses fire and it goes through, you can, if you can get a little bit of awareness, you can even point it out, say like, oh, that thought's about my sister. Like even like just point it out. Oh, that like I, you guys can't see me because this is <laughs> a podcast I totally forgot. But I'm pointing like as in like it's a cloud floating by like, oh, they're like that thoughts about my sister, you know, so getting a little bit of clarity that when those habitual thoughts roll in like thunderclouds rolling into a perfect sunny day, that those thoughts belong in the past. Those thoughts don't belong to your daughter and they are not they, they're habits and they are not true. Right. So why can't you be more flexible? there's probably like reasons why she can't be more flexible. Do you have a sense of like why flexibility is hard for her? Yeah, I mean, when I'm able to get back myself, I understand that she's three. (laughs) 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 Like, oh, right, you're still three. And yes, I'm, you know, when I get to my my higher self, I'm able to understand these things. Absolutely. So even just pointing out in the moment to yourself, like, oh, that thought belongs to my sister. That thought's from the past. That thought's a habit can bring you back to yourself much quicker. So being firm with your thoughts, like with your thought process, right? Because we have control over what we're thinking. Sometimes it feels like we don't because the cascade of thoughts starts flowing really fast. Um, But we got to get right, like these are called thought stopping techniques and they are kind of a placeholder for good thought work. We have to get interrupt the flow, right? Like, and this is kind of like if we're thinking about our thoughts are a river, they're flowing um, along a stream, being able to say like, oh, that thought belongs in the past. That thought was about my sister pulls us out of the river. And so we can stand on the banks and watch the flow of our thoughts a little bit and get a little bit more distance and clarity that pulls us out, right? And so you said something before too, about the like, you know, eat or don't eat, I don't care right? That's my anger piece. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, there's also anger with it. But like, that's an option. But with a different attitude and a different energy, right? So eat or don't eat, I don't care, comes from a place of like, I feel rejected, not good enough. Nothing I ever do is right for you. Yeah? Yeah. I'm just guessing. But like, I'm not responsible for making your meal perfect. You know, like, oh, buddy, I know you're disappointed. You wanted it cut this way and it's not. And that's so hard. Like has a little bit more of like the empathy and detached piece, but still has the sense of like, you can eat it or not. You know, like it's, I know it's not how you were hoping it would be, you know. So the like the eat it or don't eat it is an okay place to come from. But the energy behind it is what matters, right? This is, in a nutshell, my challenge with her, because I may or may mm-hmm. not say the right things with my words, but it absolutely does not matter if I'm not there with my, with my sensitivity. With the energy. Okay, so this is making me think of something that you said 
a while back that's been kind of hanging out in the back of my mind. And I just am curious, when you were talking about your mom and your oldest sister and your next older sister and how your next older sister was more easygoing and could meet your mom's needs for affection, like the codependency, like alarm bell went off in my head. And I am wondering about that. If there is some, because I mean, many of us were raised in kind of codependent relationships with our, in our families, where we were emotionally responsible, we, we were responsible for our parents' emotional well-being, for helping to meet our parents' needs, helping to keep things calm so that our parents could be okay. Like this is classic codependency, right? But and that sneaks in on us to the best of us. The idea that like, you need to be flexible so that my life can be easier kind of thing, like thought pattern. And so like, this is with like heaping, heaping doses of compassion and grace. And we're just becoming, you know, aware of patterns with no blame, no shame or guilt, because those things shut down any growth opportunities, right? I recognize those in myself and my thoughts often, because I was raised in a codependent family where there was a lot of emotional codependency. Like my dad was also raised in a very emotionally codependent place. I mean, oh my gosh, his older brother was killed in a car accident and he became the one who was responsible for keeping his mom happy after that accident. I mean, like, so he had no other option than to raise me in an emotionally codependent way. He couldn't have possibly. Like those things take time to shift. Those patterns take generations to shift. And so they're still within me with no like blame or ill will towards my dad. He did the best that he could, but there were absolutely times where I needed to be different or showed it up differently so that he could be okay emotionally. There's still times where that pattern is still present. And there are still times where as an adult, I have to block that pattern from happening with him and my kids, where he will be pressuring them to do something to please him. And I step in and I say to my kids directly, it's okay for you to not do what he's asking. You don't have to. Grandpa can handle it. He's a grown up. You know, like, and, you know, and I'm talking directly to the kids, but, and, and with compassion to my dad, like, of course, you know, we all want to keep the, you know, help the people we love be happy, but kids are not responsible for that. And so when we notice that pattern of our thoughts flowing in our heads, it's so good to cultivate self-talk back to us. Do you feel like you have a sense of, like, were you aware sometimes that your thoughts tended towards, like, I want her to be easy so that I can be okay? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I wasn't labeling it exactly that way. So it's good to hear you phrase it that way. And again, with no judgment or blame or guilt at all, okay? With only compassion for ourselves, okay? Because we're all doing the best that we can. No, I, I agree. I mean, especially at this time where a lot of my needs are not getting met because of yeah. COVID and because of isolation and all that stuff, I, I put a lot on my kids. Yeah, we all do. And that is natural and it happens. And at the same time, we have to recognize patterns that are happening and coming up and work to change them. And awareness is the first piece of it, right? And so cultivating some things you can say back to yourself can be really helpful. Like, you know, my ability to make food that's pleasing to my daughter does not define my worth as a parent or whether or not I'm doing a good job as a mom. You know, being able to say those things. And if you know that like mealtimes are going to be a struggle, like giving yourself a pep talk beforehand can be super helpful. So like when one of my kids are in a picky phase like that, and it happens with all kids, they go through them. Like before we sit down to dinner, sometimes even like if my husband happens to be there with me, we will say, okay, so we're serving this. We know that this one is not going to eat it. We know that they will complain about it. We know that that's going to happen, that they will, you know, not like 
like it or whatever. And when that happens, like this is how we're going to respond. We're going to have a plan for it. We're going to be proactive about it. You can sit down with yourself and journal for two minutes before you call the kids to dinner about, you know, like, okay, so this is what she's probably going to say. This is what I'm going to say back. This is what I'm going to say to myself. Okay, I'm going to practice that to myself over and over right now. My worth as a parent is not defined by whether or not my kids like my cooking. My worth as a parent is not defined by whether my kids like my cooking. You know, like whatever affirmation it is. And that puts you in a compassionate and kind of good mindset for it. I don't, is that something you've tried to do before meals with? Um, no, it's actually a really good suggestion. I didn't think about that again. Yeah. And this, you know, so with kids who are difficult temperament wise, who have this big, sensitive personality big feelings. I mean, these kids are here to wake us up. They're here to change the world. They're here for a purpose, right? If we can just hang on for the ride and not crush it out of them, they are going to do amazing things because they have this power in them that just needs to be honed and cultivated and just needs a good prefrontal cortex on top to help them filter it and regulate it. And they don't have it yet, right? I think about sometimes about those of us who are like this, are the change makers in the world who are, you know, what we could have done if we didn't have it crushed out of us or stuffed out of us as kids, or we didn't get the message that this was wrong or bad for us as kids. But it's hard for the parents in the moment. And we're all just doing the best that we can. So being, if we know though, that this is who we have, this we've got one of these change makers in our family we've got one of these strong-willed sensitive kids then we got to be prepared for it we know there's going to be pushback on all of these things there is no reason to like walk through your house and through your life with unexpected explosions coming up when we can map out the landmines <laughs> that are there there's no reason to feel like we are walking on eggshells because this is predictable right we can get ahead of it yeah yeah Absolutely. And so like with all of these things, that proactive nature to it is what gets you out of feeling like you are just surviving, that you are just putting out fires, you know, that you're constantly having to repair and reconnect instead of, you know, being able to be mindful and intentional in the moment. The proactive piece of it is so important. So I would also highly recommend that you sit down with yourself and make a list of like, okay, so when do I know we're going to have a problem? When do I know there's going to be conflict? You know, with one of my kids right now, she's having some sock sensitivities. I know that every time she puts on socks, every single time she puts on socks, it's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. And so when it's time to put on socks, I take a few minutes to mentally prepare myself, to soothe myself, make sure I'm in a good headspace, right? So mapping out your day, going through sitting down and get those points out. And then it can be really helpful too to have like where you are, where that happens, to give yourself notes like so we put on socks for the most part in the mudroom and there's this cabinet and right at eye level I put a post-it note that says breathe mama on it you know and put it right there so I see it when I'm standing kind of standing up waiting for her to put her socks on you know like it's right there right where I'm looking okay so those are the proactive things and here's the in the moment stuff too well I guess I want to hear what you have to say about the proactive piece of stuff piece of things I mean, I, you know, I, I love it. <laughs> okay. I think kind of what I'm working on already. So yeah, right. So like I do, I think like even for your homework, I would love to have you send me your list of predictable times, you know, she's going to lose it, you know, that there's going to be conflict, you know, there's going to be resistance, right? If you send those to me, that would be great just for accountability. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and then so in the moment when it's happening, we've talked a little bit about your mindset, your thought work, 
again, the proactive work of self-soothing, of building those skills so that you can get the pause in the moment and get yourself on right. But one of the biggest things you can do, in my opinion, when this is all happening is to get lower than them. Okay, so most of the time when this is happening with these kids, these kids are very sensitive to their sense of control and their autonomy and their individuality. And anytime we give them any kind of direction or any kind of change request, it feels like an infringement on who they are and they push back against it. They have such a firm sense of who they are and such a very strong boundary around it that when we feel like we're encroaching on that boundary, they shove it back on it. And so if we get lower than their eyes, that is a signal to their nervous system that they are in charge, that they are in a a position of power. And so the very first thing when this happens with my kiddos, especially my explosive one, is that I get lower. I get down lower so that she's over top of me. We are big to these little kids. We are huge to them. It can be really helpful to, to do an exercise if you have another adult in your life who is willing to do this with you to get low yourself, get down low, like sit down on the ground and have them stand over you and tell you what to do, get mad at you and kind of role play that so that you have that experience of looking up on an adult who's angry with you. I mean, it can be a really great exercise to do with a partner if they have time and are available because there's that attachment relationship between the two of you and it will highlight how scary it can be. And for some kids who are in that situation who feel unsafe, a lot of the time, just because of the body they have, just because of the brain they have, the nervous system that they have, giving that trigger, giving that clue that you're safe, you're in control, you have power here by getting lower can be a big change, right? Do you do the get lower thing on a regular basis with her? Not on a regular basis. I do try when I contact and sort of sit down, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes that triggers her. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The sitting down Some people think that sitting down in front of a kid feels like that you are grounded and you're not going anywhere. Like I like to crouch down with one foot up, like on one leg down rather than actually like sitting down planted so that I'm quick to move. You know, with an explosive kid who has low self-regulation skills, you got to be quick to move sometimes. And sitting down cross-legged makes you not able to be so quick, you know, and I know that you are expecting a little one. Your movements are a little bit limited right now too. I mean, so that can help but like this is a perfect example about how like general parenting advice too sometimes doesn't work for your kid and then you got to flex and be willing to move what does help her soothe calm down feel like she's got some power in a situation do you have a sense so it depends on the situation and what is triggering her reaction Mm -hmm. sometimes it's all about the power struggle and she just needs me to give her a little bit to like sort of give in a little bit with whatever it is I'm holding on to. Yeah. You know, like sometimes I just, I need to be more flexible. I need to be the one to sort of give in, even though it feels like in the moment I'm holding my ground because I'm trying to be the parent. But in reality, it's probably just plain old power struggle and I'm holding my ground as much as she's holding her ground. Yeah. <laughs> so in those situations, it helps to just give in. Just yeah. let her do at least one thing mm-hmm. that she wants to do that I was resisting. And then there are times when she's just completely dysregulated. And I just, you know, it's like maybe I know what started it, but I couldn't change that situation for her. She was overstimulated for one reason or another. And that yeah. was out of my control. And she just, this is her coping. And that's it. I need to hold space for that. Yeah. And how does she like to have you help her with that? So usually, honestly, she likes to 
be alone. I let her, I, I gave her a stuffed animal she loves and a blanket that she loves. And I just sort of coaxed her to go to them. Yeah. Um, I said, why don't you go get your blanket and your, you know, your animal and your friend and give them a hug. And, you know, because she doesn't want me to do that. She needs yeah. to do that for herself. Yeah, you know, I think that it is more common than what people know. I think in kind of the popular, you know, peaceful parenting world, we get the message that we shouldn't leave our kids alone with their emotions. And like, there's truth to that. We shouldn't like banish them to their rooms with their big feelings because their big feelings are unacceptable to us. But when they are asking for space, when they're seeking for space, when they are attempting to soothe themselves and our presence is making that harder for them, I think that it's respectful to trust our children to trust that this is what they need. This is the space that they need. And having a proactive plan for that can be really helpful too. So like, you know, and that plan updates as kids get older. Well, when my five-year-old was three, our plan was different than it is now. We just updated our plan for when she's having big feelings. Now she wants me to, you know, she used to like like me to kind of help her get to her room so she could, you know, get it all out while I sat outside her door. And now she wants me to um, just let her go to her room or wherever she is, you know, have her feelings and then check on her every three minutes and just, you know, every three minutes say, you know, it's been three minutes. Are you ready for me? And then when she's ready, then she crawls into my lap and we snuggle and talk about it, you know. But having a proactive plan can be really, really helpful for that. And this is just for listeners. It sounds like you have a proactive plan for your little one. I can always perfect it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and it it takes updating as they grow. And, you know, I want to just mention too that for those who are listening, who are saying like, I hearing you say, I give in, you know, there is a difference between permissiveness and offering our child grace and the ability to be an imperfect human, right? So there is a difference between being permissive and not having any boundaries and not holding the ones that are important for keeping our kids safe and being able to walk it back, coming to understand when we've been too rigid or if we've invited them into a power struggle and taking a step back from that, letting go of our need to control them. There are differences between, there's nuance and shades of gray there. And so I think oftentimes lots of parents have a fear of being permissive and it keeps them from being flexible with their kids. And so I loved what you said there about how there are times when I just need to be flexible. And I think that's part of being the grown up in the relationship, recognizing like I have the skills, the cognitive skills that I need to be flexible and a three-year-old does not. Sometimes a three-year-old has rigid thinking and self-centered thinking because they have a three-year-old brain and I don't have a three-year-old brain. I have the ability to be flexible here, which means I have the opportunity to offer her grace and compassion and offer that to myself and to be flexible. And I think that is drastically different than being permissive. Do you know what I mean? I hear it, yeah. And there's another proactive piece to this too, is that when we have a kid who pushes back against all of our limits and all of our boundaries, we have to be super intentional about the limits and boundaries that we set, the regular, you know, the kind of the rules of the house. And we may need to drastically reduce some of our expectations and drastically reduce some of the things that we ask kids to do in order to let things calm down. And especially for these kids whose nervous system reacts as if we're threatening them every time we ask them to do something. Like, and that's a fact that there are kids out there who every time we say it's time, you know, to put your shoes on, you know, do you need to go potty? You know, no, I can't let you have these, you know, the fruit snacks for snack because you just had a pack of fruit snacks, you know, or, you know, whatever it is, anytime we give any limit, they perceive it as a threat and their nervous systems are on high alert for that. And so sometimes drastically reducing our expectations can be really helpful. 
too. And that, you know, when you make that map of your day of like the common landmines where I know there's going to be conflict, that's also a really good opportunity to revise and just kind of take a look at like, okay, so in this situation, what's my expectation? Ideally, what would she do? Is it reasonable? Do I need it? Is it necessary? Is it one that I can prune away for now? Not always, but just for now until she can better meet more expectations. I don't know if that's helpful too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with all these changes that are going to be happening. I know, the new little ones and you stuff. You got to go bare-boned with my expectations. Bare-boned. <laughs> Give yourself permission to, like, so in my Respectful Parenting 101 course, I teach about the three S's for knowing kind of what limits to set. They are safety is first. That That's what we, like, when we think about a limit, we think about for the most part, most of our limits should be around safety, around keeping kids safe, keeping ourselves safe, keeping our property safe, you know. And then the next one is that next S is stages. So thinking about kids' developmental stage, is this expectation appropriate for them? Is this something that reasonably we can expect them to be able to follow through on? And then the the last S is our sanity. You know, can we handle them doing this? Can our relationship survive them doing this? Or do we need to limit it to kind of protect our relationship? And so thinking about those three S's and looking at the places where you have these kind of landmines and explosions and really analyzing like, do I need this, this limit? Is this limit about her safety? You know, if it's yes, then we keep it. If it's no, then we ask, okay, so is this limit developmentally appropriate? If it is, you know, then we keep it. If it's not, then we let it go. And and then the next one is, you know, does this limit preserve our relationship? Does it preserve my sanity? And if it does, then you keep it. If it doesn't, then it's probably one we can let go. Then we found some that we can release. I would recommend going through that process too. <laughs> okay. I mean, and so like, and that helps us fine tune, like, what do we really care about? What do we really believe? And so then when we have this list of like, what our actual limits are, what we really are going to be focusing on with our kiddos, then when the other ones come up, when we are met with resistance and the pushing back, we know like, hey, this one doesn't matter, you know? This one doesn't matter. Right now, I'm not focusing on this. And we can let it go with confidence and the full knowledge that we're not being permissive, that we're holding the boundaries that matter to us. Right? Yeah. Okay. So you were saying you wanted to have a clarify on the three S's, right? Go ahead and. Yeah. I mean, I understand the boundaries that you set for, you know, for safety. Stage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stage of development and insanity. But what about teaching moments or you're trying to be proactive and you know, trying to lead them or teach them. Can you give me an example? I'm trying to think of one as we're talking. So maybe it's something not so much of a boundary that they can't do something, but you're trying to teach them how to handle a certain situation. So I'm trying to think of one. So for instance, the other day, my daughter was had a friend over who has an allergy and there was a snack that my daughter wanted. And I told her, normally I would let her have it. And I said, you know, I, I, we can't have this because your friend has an allergy. I said, you know, I didn't say use the word allergy, but I said, your friend's body can't handle this food. So it's not nice for us to eat it if she can't have it. Now, I know this is a pretty mature lesson for a three-year-old, but, and she, you know, she completely lost it. Of and course. she had, you know, a five-minute tantrum on the floor, which I understand. But there are boundaries, and maybe that would be considered more safety. But I'm thinking of just from a teaching perspective of these of these situations. Yeah. So I think one of the things that in that moment, your expectation that she will be able to like understand your rationale and accept the boundary with grace may be developmentally inappropriate. All right. So like, and that happens to us all the time. We think like if we give them a good reason for why we're saying no, they'll accept that happily. Right. You know, and they don't care. 
you know, so I mean, and, and they can't care. So the part of the brain that allows a kid to put themselves into someone else's shoes consistently, think about what it be, would be like to be in their perspective and be in, in that experience, that part of the brain, the kids start getting really good at that between six and eight. And so for a, like a three-year-old, like they do not care about the other kid's allergy or what might like hurt them. Like they don't care. And it's not that they, because they're mean, it's because they can't care. They literally don't have the, that ability yet most of the time. You know, some kids are super empathetic and can do that, but that's, there's a developmental range for those things. And so when that's happening, like sometimes in our delivery of some limits, we give off the energy that we are trying to convince our kids to see it our way, that we're trying to convince our kids to like our limit, like our boundary, that that energy comes out of us like we are in trying to frame it in a way that so that we don't get the meltdown, right? And these kids, especially kids like your daughter and my oldest one are incredibly sensitive to that. And it feels like lies and manipulation and they reject it right? So we're not lying to them, but we are kind of trying to convince them not to have their feelings, right? When we do those things, we're kind of trying to convince them like, you know, like, this is a good thing. Like, this is not, you know, like, I mean, we and we do this because we don't want our kids to struggle. We don't want our kids to have pain. We don't want to have a freaking meltdown when they're having a play day and they've got a friend over either. You know, we're trying to avoid some of this. And then we go in and we give the delivery of a limit, you know, with a little bit of an energy that especially for some kids, but many kids see right through and don't care about, you know, and it can even be bigger. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, but yeah, it's still a boundary you have to hold. It is. So that's in the delivery then. Like, yeah, you know, buddy, like, you know, so there's a difference between like, you know, we can't have this right now because your friend can't have it. And so we're not going to have it. You know, your friend isn't able to have it. It would be unsafe for us to have it right now. And we can't have it, you know, and just a little bit versus, you know, the piece of it wouldn't be nice to eat it in front of them, you know, like that kind of convincing. And then like really getting comfortable with the idea that they do not have to like our boundaries, right? That that we can handle a meltdown. Like, first of all, my guess is that that meltdown was not about the snack at all. That meltdown was because her, you know, window of tolerance was being shortened by being with her friend, that she was having to engage in a lot of self-regulation by simply existing and being in a space with another kid her age, playing with them, navigating social relationships. Like that's exhausting to a three-year-old who has very few skills. And so I'm guessing that that meltdown had very little to do with the snack and much more to do with that she had kind of nothing left to give in those moments. And so when that's happening, like we can even tell ourselves like, this isn't about, like, this isn't about the snack. She needs this meltdown. This meltdown is good for her. You know, this is her body offloading stress in the best way it knows how. She needs to be able to cry. She needs to get this out of her system. You know, having a good things to tell about our, like ourselves. But we also have to do the proactive work of like not being afraid of our kids' big feelings and not trying to, con- you know, think that we need to, they need to just accept our limits with grace, that even adults have a hard time accepting boundaries and limits that they don't like, you know, of navigating situations with grace. Even adults have problems in those scenarios. Like, I mean, you think about like, if uh, my husband came home the other day and had gotten some food while he, you know, to, I don't know, had gotten some food while he was out, he was at work and he came home with food and he was like, they discontinued my favorite sandwich at this place. They don't have it anymore. 
he was upset about it. He was disappointed about it. You know, like, I mean, he didn't fall on the floor and have a meltdown, but that's because he had this great, you know, well-developed brain, you know, that kept him from being able to do that, that three-year-olds don't have, have access to yet too. So I hope that that was helpful to like our lens, our mindset, like even when we go in, like I would release the need to teach her anything in that moment and that she will learn the empathy simply by having been engaged and seeing you empathize with the kiddo. You know, like they don't need to learn all of that stuff. There's not an emergency in these learning things. And most of the time when we are trying to teach a kid a lesson, the kid is in a brain state where they are the least likely to learn the lesson, you know? And so, yeah, the learning opportunities I think we can let a lot of those slide by and trust that they will learn those things in other ways that we don't need to like directly teach a lot of that, that a lot of that will get that they will learn through experience and through seeing it in action. And so we can kind of even reassure ourselves that we can release the idea that we are going to somehow make her see the perspective that it would be how hard it would be to be at a friend's house, see them eating something you can't have, you know, like there's other opportunities and she will have time to learn that when she's older too. There's no emergency, no need to speed through it at three, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. And that's for lots of like the teaching opportunities, you know, and and like, and being kind to ourselves. Like, of course we all want to raise empathetic, compassionate, kind kids. Like, and that's like part of our identity too as parents. So I hope that you're super kind with yourself on those things. But I think you can also give yourself permission to let some of those agendas go so that you can hold a more clear boundary that is rooted in kind of what she needs, you know, but so that so keep it to the safety without the teaching. I mean, yes, keep it to the, the safety. Ba- the boundary is the safety issue, not anything else. Right. So yeah, exactly. Don't like we don't have to complicate it with all of our adult stuff. I think that we do that sometimes we take our adult lens and all that we want our kids to learn and be and we put it on our kids way too early. Like we can take that adult stuff like is not their responsibility at this point in time. Like it's your responsibility to make sure that no allergens are out when the play date is happening and we can hold that boundary with confidence and she doesn't have to like it, you know, and she will learn to be compassionate for her friends with allergies later, you know, and she will learn it through other ways of being. So for example, we have so many kids in our network that have allergies. And so every time before COVID, we would have a birthday party, my kids would watch me carefully make three or four different birthday cakes so that everybody had a treat at the party. I mean, what do you think they learned? They learned that piece of it then, as opposed to in the moment where they're being denied something and they're disappointed by it, you know? So they we can be confident that our kids will learn the things that they need simply by watching us and being the beautiful, compassionate, empathetic person that I know you are. Your kids will learn all of those things in time. And there's no rush on any of them. Those are lifelong lessons that many adults I know are still learning too. Okay. All right. Thanks for asking that clarifying question. That was great. Okay. So this was a lot to digest. If you do have questions, feel free to follow up with me. Thank you for being with us and being so open and vulnerable in this session. I think it's going to be really helpful for the folks who listen to it. I hope so. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of 
um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.